0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btofer at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Ginger Nolan to talk about her book, Savage Mind, a Savage Machine, Racial Science, and 20th Century Design. Ginger Nolan is Assistant Professor of Architectural History and Theory at the University of Southern California School of Architecture. Ginger, thank you very much for being here with me today, and welcome to the show.
0: Yeah, thank you very much for having me.
1: Of course. Now, before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself?
0: Um, Yeah, so I'm an architectural historian, um, and I work not just on architecture, but on uh, aesthetic media and infrastructures um, and technologies. Uh, and I think like like many people who I think come from an architectural background, a background in design, who move into architectural history, um, I work a lot on late 20th century histories, but I also have a, um, some projects that look at um, late 18th but mostly 19th century histories as well.
1: So I know it's a vague question to sometimes start with, uh, whenever, uh, but I want to ask about kind of a brief overview or synopsis of the book, particularly because... Often, when someone reads the title of a book, they can probably think they know what's going on, and I have to admit, I thought that, and I was completely wrong on quite a few accounts for the book. So,
0: yeah, and titles are also not only the work of the author but of the publisher. So <laughs> sometimes they can be a little misleading based on what um, publishers think will market well. So I think I think racial science is a little bit misleading, and that that is um, a, a theme to some extent, but it's not. Um, I, I wouldn't have necessarily had that in my, as an actual title, but, um, but yeah, so Savage Mind to Savage Machine, um, it is basically looking at the relationship, um, from the late 19th century through the 20th century, um, between modernist design, but specifically the applied arts, like industrial design, architecture, media, media design, including computation, um, the relationship between these and uh, a discourse of modernist primitivism. Um, so you know, there's an awful lot of scholarship out there in our history that looks at the connection between the fine arts and sort of practices of collecting and exhibiting um, world architectures through the lens of modernist prim- primitivism, but there's very little um, scholarship that really thinks about primitivism in relationship to the applied arts. So that's basically what it's about. Um, I'd also just add very quickly that um, because of that different emphasis, I think there's a different kind of primitivism than from what one finds in in the fine arts and that it's much more focused on the psychological and the semiotic um, in that designers in the applied arts were really interested in uh, the unconscious mechanisms of creativity and of cultural formation and of aesthetic communication um, so I look at those those things as well.
1: Interesting. And uh, you bring up primitivism, and hopefully I said that right. I, I want to come back to that, of course. And so uh, thank you for that explanation. And so, you know, again, I'm kind of breaking the mold more than once with this. I, I often don't like to kind of quiz authors on very unique terms or concepts. However, there's quite a few in here that jump out. And the one I would love to ask about is the idea of spiritual ergonomics, you know two terms that i think anyone in architecture school is very familiar with but I, I personally and i think many have not heard spiritual ergonomics before
0: yeah so um i guess i'll break it down by saying first by spiritual i'm thinking more uh, in the sense of cognition so maybe it's more like kind of the german geist in which it's the spirit but it's also the the mind the brain um so know if you think about like industrial terrorism right which we think about these of the the training and disciplining of the body um spiritual ergonomics i'm thinking of as a set set of dispositifs, really things that are kind of disposing um people and their brains um in relation to technologies um so not necessarily to encourage um greater productivity, although that's one thing I look at in the late 19th and early 20th century, like for example, at the Bauhaus, um, we see spiritual ergonomics um, as a way of encouraging sort of greater creative production um, and often in relation to new technologies of reproduction. But I also look at it um, sort of more from the angle of um, sort of technological use and perception, right? So like looking at computation um, and how brains are being configured in relationship to new new technological interfaces does that does that make sense I cannot it, it does okay well you read the book so you probably yes. <laughs>
1: yeah I also have an unfair advantage here <laughs>
0: more, more length, but yeah
1: <laughs> And so it, that brings a good point though and so of course I am an architect I teach architecture and so that when i when I grabbed the book that is kind of where I was. However, you do talk about architecture. You do talk about quite a bit of other fields as well, even in the responses you've been giving. And so initially, when you, when, I, when, I saw, when I was going through it and you bring up the Bauhaus and modernism, which, of course, are very important in the book, you know, I am familiar with those from an architectural standpoint. However, and again, I, I'm going to pretend like I didn't read it. You, you, you talk about those in a light that, as it, those of us in the architecture field have not kind of been, become familiar with if that question makes sense.
0: Yeah, well, no, because I'm not talking, I'm talking about people who are not architects at the Bauhaus. You mean, for example? Yeah. So, um, so you know, people who architects might be familiar with, like Johannes Itten, because he taught this, um, you know, sort of famous preliminary course, the four course, um, at the Bauhaus. But, um, and Gertrude Grunau, who's, who's less known, is becoming a little better known. Um, but, um but it, yeah, I'm interested sort of in design. I mean, design at that time period. I think starting in the late 19th century, but you certainly see this more strongly at the Bauhaus. Like, design is being conceptualized as a discipline as a, uh, that enfolds many forms of creative production um, um, at this time period. So that's design more than architecture per se is is my topic of interest. Although certainly, you know, architects play. Um, significant roles in different chapters like Yonah Friedman um, and um, the Smithsons to some extent. Um, but but even sometimes those architects like Yonah Friedman, as you know, having read the book, right, I'm looking a lot at his propaganda work for UNESCO. So it's not always work that is so directly architectural, although I look at that too. Mm-hmm.
1: And so you at now, of course, we'll bring it back to something we ta- you talked about earlier. You've been mentioned primitivism. I'm not sure why that that, that gets me so much. And so, you know, right in the title of the book, the idea that you have savage mind. And so throughout the book, you bring up the idea of savage thought, not just kind of what I think a lot of us are thinking of, but there's quite a bit more you elaborate on there. And so the question I have is, you know, this idea of savage thought and primitivism, can you walk us through a little bit, you know, kind of why that's central to the book's theme?
0: Yeah. um, So... And it's, you know, actually, you're raising a, an interesting question too, which for me was like in writing this. It's something that scholars who write on similar topics face. Right? Is like, to what extent do you like constantly use scare quotes when you use these terms, and how do you choose these these terms? Um, and I I chose the term "savage" in many cases, and and for the title, I mean, partly because I'm riffing on um, Claude Levi Strauss. Um, uh, pensée sauvage or you know savage thought the the book um that one of the books he's famous for um but and i'll talk a little bit about why but um but i prefer the term savage because i i think it's kind of a hyperbole right whereas the primitive you know until not fairly recently right was a kind of acceptable term in like our field not in other fields perhaps but um <laughs> but in the field of architecture like um and i think even primitive hut sometimes isn't really used and put in scare quotes until fairly recently. But um, but I think when people hear the term savage, it's I think has a much sort of kind of stronger connotation of of violence and the violence that the term does. Um, but primitivism, I mean, it's not a term that I'm coining. It, it's used quite a bit by art historians who look at um, you know the way modernist artists were um, producing a discourse and aesthetics of the so-called primitive. Um, and so it's that discourse that I'm, that I'm interested in, and the aesthetics. Um, you know, as for, as for the term savage, I mean, I mean L- Levi Strauss was an important um, figure. I mean, not, I don't focus on his work very much, but it's because, you know, Levi Strauss, you know, this anthropologist who's writing primarily in the 1950s and 60s, Um, and into the 70s, um, most of his major works. But he, um, you know, he had like many people at the time, right? He had a a cybernetic understanding of the human brain as functioning according to a binary system of like on or off electrical impulses. And so this really informed his understanding of culture. And so he really kind of clarifies that relationship that I'm interested in between uh, technology uh, and the human brain and the so-called primitive, um, and of course he doesn't use the term primitive himself, or he uses it in scare quotes if he uses it. Um, but but he is nonetheless, I think, looking. You know, he does make distinctions, right, between the so-called bricoleur and the engineer that kind of roughly map onto, um, I think, related ideas of the the so-called primitive and the you know the so-called modern. Um, so that's why I'm using the term savage. Uh, uh,
1: Thank you very much. That clears a lot. And so you had meant, and so of course you kind of talked about, you didn't use the word politics, but you did talk about when writing about something like that. And so in a few spots throughout the book, you do talk about, how do I word this? That's sounding too vague. The idea of politics versus the, tell me if I'm misunderstanding anything, but the ability of design to kind of depoliticize certain items
0: yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, you know, when I, when I mentioned earlier that um, designers were very interested in these unconscious mechanisms of thought, of, you know, aesthetic communication, of, you know, culture, um, they, you know, that, that, that interest has a kind of depoliticizing implication, right? So, so archi- not just architects, many designers were interested in aesthetics, um aesthetic modes of communication that circumvented language and that's a key trope in the book the circumvention of language as a kind of conscious mode of analysis and discourse and the search for you know less conscious modes of communication so um like i mean one of the sort of prime examples is like marshall McLuhan, who talks about um and he's he's drawing from like um people working like in the British colonial film unit, for example, who are um, interested in how radio and film are really um, forms of governmentality that don't work through conscious propaganda, political propaganda, but that kind of weave people um, unconsciously into sort of rubrics of governmentality. Um, so that's, so, as, so the depoliticization, right, is in this constant assumption, right, of people who can be deprived of political agency um, through forms of architecture and other aesthetic media that are kind of organizing them or disposing them um, in ways that they don't fully grasp.
1: Right. And so, and thank you again. And so everything you just discussed, you brought up technology a few times. And so, of course, the, I guess, I know there's not a specific time frame, but there, in my opinion, there does seem to be a bit of a focus on a specific time frame in the book. Would you agree that post war kind of modernism would be the time you focus on yeah, the book?
0: You're, yeah, because it's only the first two chapters really that are, bef- and then the other six chapters are, yeah, all post war up into the late 20th century.
1: And so and so the question I had is you know we're talking about technology and so that's an interesting time period because at of course technology is always present but in that time period a lot of designers again with my own bias architecture in particular technology started to become a little more prevalent or at least exposed and so the, the, what's interesting is would you think would you say that in the present day of course this book isn't focused on that but would you say that things are kind of similar to what you talk about in the book or?
0: Well, I think, I mean, I think the book and my own thoughts like are, are speaking to a lot of contemporary phenomena that are not necessarily architectural, at least not depending I mean, depending on how broadly or narrowly you define architecture. But um, I think so much of it is really speaking to, um, you know, phenomena related to like social media um, and the, the depoliticizing, Effects of, or at least, you know. I mean, maybe I'll give it one example to flesh it out better. Like, you know, I I talk a little bit about um, Nicholas Negroponte, the architect who um, was one of the the co-founders of the MIT Architecture Machine Group um, in the late '60s, early '70s, Um, and you know in the, around 1980, right, he's talking, and he's not the only one talking about this, like, lots, all these people are talking about things like this, but he's talking already about news feeds, right, that are tailored to your, um, how, how, you know, technologies can learn from your preferences and feed you the news that you want, as opposed to the news that you don't want to read, that you're less interested in. Um, And so I think, you know, the political effects of, like, thinking about technologies that tap so directly into our impulses that um, and kind of filter out, you know, what's not sort of, that doesn't, whatever it does not appear as sort of intrinsically um, appealing, right? To one's drives, right? This is um, something that we I think we're so familiar with today with all the debates around Facebook and, and Twitter, et cetera.
1: Yes, that answers my question and, and then some, it actually brings up quite a few other things to talk about. And so, again, as an architect, I keep focusing on design as, you know, the literal drawing of something and then building it at some point. And, you know, we've talked about artists, but there's something else that you talking about social media brings up and that you talk about kind of towards the end of the book. You know, the fact that design is not just this physical thing. And I know a lot of us make that there is UX designers and kind of computer engineering, et cetera, that probably have more impact on our lives than physical design.
0: Yeah, and and I'm not also the first person to make this claim. Like you know, there are people like John Harwood um, who you know talk about sort of the architecture of the interface, and it's um, so, you know it's it's not just a coincidence that architects have been involved. Um, or you can, you know, Molly Stevenson uh, writes book right on architecture and and computer design, um, right? That architects have been des- uh, involved in the design of computer interfaces, uh, and there are these overlap so I think you know figures like Yona Friedman are so interesting because of the ways that their architectures relate to the ways they you know this, these mega structures that Yona Friedman proposed into which people could kind of plug their own auto constructed houses um, the way these relate to them the way that' he's thinking about um, the design of computer programs hardware and software actually that could allow people to kind of plug their preferences into you um, a computer program that would then sort of arrange different auto-constructed units, or at least units that people sort of had some some kind of determination over the layout. Um, it would sort of plug these into a, a mega structure. Um, so there are these very direct connections between uh, computer interface design and architectural design in the in the nineteen seventies. Uh, yes, of
1: course, and so. Again, I, I I've been saying this a lot lately. There's there's so much more we could talk about in the book, and so I will encourage everyone who's listening to read because I we can't sit here for the next few hours talking about it all. But one thing uh, I think our viewers would love to hear about is you know I you told me this before we started recording that the book took a long time. But you know since the book kind of wrapped up and has been published, you know what have you then moved on to? What projects are taking up your time now?
0: yeah well i mean it's also not like the book wrapped up at one point because it was wrapped up at various points and then you return to it so i've been very intermittently working on a project um a large project but that you know i've been stalled on as far as the archival research because of the pandemic and my own like um you know intercontinental (laughs) relocations but um but uh it's it's a project that looks. At, it's it's also a kind of long history, but a little bit more historical in, in certain ways. In that it um, it looks at architectures and infrastructures of risk management in settler colonial contexts in North America. So it's sort of seeing how the home, how domesticity, how agriculture uh, were being organized through different infrastructures. So even you know things like I mean, financial infrastructures like bank mortgages and home insurance and farm insurance and things like that um, as well as um, mediatic infrastructures like farmers almanacs um, but and, and then how homes themselves right were being um, conceived as part of a, a project of, um, of settling uh, colonial territories and westward expansion um, so that's, that project is also, I mean, it's, it looks, it focuses largely on Euro-American strategies of colonial settlement, but it also looks at sort of some groups who are excluded from these infrastructures of risk management and how the kind of alternative forms of risk management that they promote. So um, like African-American um, owned and African-American um, uh, sort of directed forms of credit for home loan, home improvements, as well as for home insurance. Um, and I also look at um, how indigenous groups, when, when they're forcibly resettled, like in Oklahoma, the kinds of architectures and infrastructures of um, risk management that they develop.
1: Interesting. Perhaps we'll, talk again in the future about that
0: (laughs) yeah probably in the distant future but yes
1: (laughs) well i want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today
0: yeah no thank you so much for interviewing me i really appreciate it
1: oh anytime and for everyone listening the book is savage mind to savage machine racial science and 20th century design thank i want to thank everyone for listening and have a great day